Shannon, have you been listening to any interesting podcasts lately? I sure have. I've been listening to True Crimecast. On True Crimecast, John and Jamie cover the big names and cases everybody wants to hear. Also, they specialize in the small town unknown cases you've never heard of. Every Tuesday, you will hear the details of each case and their analysis of whether or not justice is served. You can find True Crimecast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Yeah, you should head over now and hit subscribe and start listening to True Crimecast today. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Slapdash, the podcast about history, art, science, and everything else. We're your hosts, Shannon Deaton and Jason Creekmore. Welcome to the show. Today we'll be discussing the top 10 most influential horror movies as voted by our listeners on social media. We asked listeners to rate the most influential horror movies spanning from 1920 through the 2000s. Uh, We'll discuss each of the horror movie candidates in detail, and at the end of the episode, we'll go ahead and reveal the rank order of the movies as determined by Slapdash listeners. Seated across from me is the horror movie expert, Jason Creekmore. How are you, man? There are few things on this earth that I enjoy more than a rank order list. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to going over that. So you're going to be excited by this episode. I'm very excited. I can tell. You know something? I'm also excited, Jason, because we just hit 1,000 downloads on the podcast. 1K. Yeah. What about that? We're closing in on 1,200, too. So it's really cool. And uh, really looking forward to this episode and getting ready to dive into the last of the Halloween episodes for the season. That's right. Yeah. So let's talk about some horror movies. Let's do it. We're going to start our discussion with a movie that many folks are familiar with. This is the George Romero classic, Night of the Living Dead, from 1968. And I just recently watched this movie, and I I think you did too. Yeah, just last week, actually. I mean, I had seen it before, but it had been a while. And uh, when we were going over this list and doing some research, I thought, hey, I need to go back and watch this again. And and I did, and it was I I really had forgotten a lot of the details about it. Yeah, it's still a great movie. It still really holds up, and it's surprising because the the budget for the movie was $114,000, which uh, by today's standards really isn't all that much. The movie went on to earn $30 million worldwide. And if you do the math on that, Jason, it's 250 times the budget is what they earned at the end of the day. So That's a good business model. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, most businesses will succeed <laughs> if you're able <laughs> to imagine so. make more money than what you put into something. So famously, the movie was written, directed, and photographed, uh, also edited by George A. Romero, uh, Romero, co-written by John Russo. And the story follows seven people who are trapped inside a farmhouse in Philadelphia as an undead horde of zombies surround them. And uh, in 1999, the film was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry as a film deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. There were five total films in the series. Each of those were directed by Romero between 1978 and 2009. I've seen several of these. Have you seen any of the sequel movies to Night of the Dead? Yes, I have. I think I've watched maybe two or three. I mean, I can't really remember like the order necessarily, but uh, I know I watched the second one. And yeah. then I think maybe I skipped one or two, and then I watched like maybe the fourth or fifth one on down the line. Yeah. Is it Dawn of the Dead? Is that the second one? I think that's one? the second one, yeah. And I watched that one. Yeah. And then I forgot, actually, after after that point. Yeah. Right. Now, I think that's the one that takes place in the shopping mall uh, because they had a remake yep. of that yep. one uh, that was in theaters around the time that I was in high school. And all my friends went to see it. And uh, just a really cool movie. I don't think prior to that I'd seen very many zombie movies at all. And uh, the remake of Dawn of the Dead is actually what sort of put me in the mood to go back and watch Night of the Living Dead and all of its black and white glory. So um, now there were some controversies surrounding this film. Uh, the MPAA, which is the Motion Picture Association of America rating system, was not in place until November 1968. So this film was made earlier than that, and such young children were permitted to buy tickets for the movie. Now, the movie is not very... I guess you would say graphic and gory by today's standards. No, today's standards, it's it's basically a goosebumps. It is. <laughs> I mean, maybe really. It's very tame. It's. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it would have received 
um, you know, by today's standards, a uh, very critical rating at all, no, necessarily. But during the time, it was very innovative, and it was something that was very different than a lot of movies that were in the theaters. And so young children, you know, being very innocent, <laughs> they saw a movie uh, titled Night of the Living Dead and said, sure, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> but Jason, if you've seen the movie, fun is not the word <laughs> for how this turns out. No, uh, for anyone. Not for anyone. We, we were talking about this the other day, and this is one of those rare movies where, spoiler alert, no one makes it out alive. <laughs> no, it's awful. <laughs> not the main character, not the little girl. <coughs> Excuse me. Not the uh, the elderly couple who's living in the basement. No. It's, uh, and I had really forgot, uh, again, sort of the details. And when I watched that, uh, it, it had been so long since I watched it, I really had forgotten it all. And and I didn't really know what was going to happen next. It was like I was watching it for the first time again, really. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of depressing. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a very sad take yeah, on really what is. happened in this uh, apocalyptic society. Um, Roger Ebert had a quote that I thought was interesting uh, about the film affecting kids who watched it. And Roger Ebert said, The kids in the audience were stunned. There was almost complete silence. The movie had stopped being delightfully scary about halfway through and had become unexpectedly terrifying. There was a little girl across the aisle from me, maybe nine years old, who was sitting very still in her seat and crying. It's hard to remember what sort of effect this movie might have had on you when you were six or seven, but try to remember. At that age, kids take the events of the screen seriously, and they identify fiercely with the hero. When the hero is killed... That's not an unhappy ending, but a tragic one. Nobody got out alive. It's just over. That's all. Man, when I read that, I think that pretty much summarized my impression of the movie exactly. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. A lot of these scary movies, not all, but many, end on a positive note. The heroes triumph. The bad guys defeated. But in this sense, it just seems to be the dawn of another terrible, terrible day. Oh, I know. You know, in a lot of movies, you see the hero sort of stumble out onto the streets, or the sun rises, and we've made it through the night, yeah. and that type of thing. And and that that just doesn't happen here. Uh, you think that that's close to happening at the very end of the movie, and then it's just like you just get you know uh, hit right in the gut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the the final scene there. It's it, it's it's sort of it's sort of tough. The movie just ends with a montage of piled up corpses, yeah. if I remember, and uh, this rogue group is coming through and they're cleaning up the countryside and they just happen upon that country house uh, where all of these terrors have taken place overnight and they run up on the main character and as soon as they see him they assume he's a zombie which he is not he survived the entire night fought off the horde everyone else in the house died you think this is going to be the cavalry coming in to save him to take him into a new day and then they shoot him and that's how the movie ends yeah and the credits roll and that's all (laughs) and you're like golly (laughs) no you made it through the apocalypse and all these zombies and then it's a punch right in the nose a a sheriff gets you from a hundred yards away (laughs) i mean well it's it's really tough to watch. Yeah, it's it's awful. Um, but overall, the movie is one of those that was very innovative for its time. It dealt with a lot of social issues that are embedded in the thematic elements of the movie and also did a lot of things on screen that were not very common at the time. And another movie that uh, actually came before Night of the Living Dead that did a lot of brand new things on the screen that really hadn't been seen before is the movie Dracula. So, Jason, what are your thoughts on Dracula? Yeah, Shannon, I'm going to go uh, go old school here. Uh, like you said, 1931, Dracula was released starring Bela Lugosi, uh, and the world of vampires would just really never be the same. Uh, Dracula was was one of the original vampire movies, but it was not the first one. Uh, as we talked about, I think maybe in an earlier episode, Nosferatu was actually released in 1922. Uh, it was Dracula, though, that would go on to influence hundreds of vampire movies. The 1931 release was clearly based on Bram Stoker's novel, uh, also called Dracula, which was written in in, uh, 1897. Uh, This is one of the more well-known storylines. But in short, uh, Dracula was 
you know, a, a rich aristocrat from Transylvania, deep in the uh, eastern parts of Europe, and he moves to England to terrorize the people there and to take a young lady named Mina as his bride. Uh, but of course, her fiance Jonathan Harker and Doctor Abraham Van Helsing they show up to save the day. So, have you ever heard of these characters? I have. Yeah, um, I'm a big fan of Bram Stoker's Dracula, one of the better horror novels. I give it a read every two or three years, and I certainly remember the events of that story very clearly. Well, we also saw the stage play. Uh, that's what I was just getting ready to say. <laughs> Se- several years ago, we went to Louisville, and we uh, I think it's called the Actors Theater. Actors Is Theater. that right? Yep. And we watched that, and that's that's a really cool play they put on there. Oh, it's terrific. I love <laughs> That's it. It's really I'd neat. Love to see it again this year. Yeah. So after Dracula was released, uh, it pretty much made sure that vampires, at least for several decades, were always cast as European and were these evil beings who just walked around in dark castles. Uh, vampires maintained this image until Salem's Lot uh, came out in the late uh, 1970s. As for props, Dracula used uh, fog machines and rubber bats. Uh, oh wow! Uh, again, this is 1931. Fog machines. Just you know, sort of some some primitive fog machines. Uh, nothing too fancy. Uh, but one interesting point there. There's a really interesting scene in the movie where Dracula is supposed to be hypnotizing someone, and the camera pans really close to his face, and you see his eyes begin to like glisten. Oh, that's a big scene. And oh yeah, that's that's probably the big scene of it. And how the director pulled that off is that they really got close to Lugosi, and they they manufactured these two flashlights that were the width of pencils. And so it projected the, these two beams of light that were just literally as wide as a pencil. And they just told him to basically just take it, just open your eyes and stare, and then we're going to turn these lights on, and we're going to be shining them directly in your eyes uh, and you know say your part, and then we'll turn it off. Wow. And so when they do this, uh, of course, uh, there's a reflection, you know, in, yeah. and it begins to glisten in his eyes on screen, and that's that's where that comes from. So you're telling me he's not a real vampire, that that he, wasn't just emitting from his eyes? He is not. No. No, they, it was fake. Man. <laughs> do they do that in movies? Is that a thing? It was. Uh, I had never heard of that. I had never that, – when I read that, I thought, that's kind of cool, you know, because I clearly remember that part, and I actually went back and watched it. That's one that you can go on YouTube and, sure. and pull up for free. Oh, and, it's probably um, in open source the, oh, by now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but it was really cool, though, to watch that because you can clearly see that part where he's his eyes are sort of white and it's almost like you can understand that the actor widens his eyes on purpose yeah you know it's it's for that was the direction he was yeah it's for these lights to come into his eyes you know (laughs) so i thought that was pretty cool that's great uh, you know, in regard to uh, uh, money, the budget for Dracula was three hundred and fifty-five thousand uh, dollars, but it did turn a profit. It actually uh, profited seven hundred thousand dollars. So it basically made wow. Uh, yeah, it, it basically in nineteen thirty-one. Uh, yep. Okay. Yeah, so it basically doubled the money. But again. It's 1931. Yeah. It's not 1961 or 71. It's 1931. Yeah. I wonder uh, what inflation would look like on that number. Yeah, I'm not quite That's sure. It's pretty high yeah. for 1931. Yeah. yeah. So Dracula, I mean, again, when you, when you well, for, for one thing, there are several Dracula movies yeah. uh, that are all sort of in the same vein there. But then, uh, I mean, all kinds of, of vampire movies. I mean, everything from like a Blade, like the Blade series, mm-hmm. Twilight, Salem's Lot, I mean, pretty much any vampire movie that you come up with. Well, they take a cue from this, no doubt. It, yeah, I mean, you clearly can connect it back to Dracula. Sure. So I think that's you can easily see why that would be one of the ten most influential horror films, absolutely, of all time. So, Shannon, what do you have uh, up next for us? I have a romantic comedy called Texas Chainsaw Master. Oh, I love that. Does that have Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan? It sure does. All right. Yeah, there's uh, a chainsaw. And, <laughs> No, uh, so Texas Chainsaw Massacre was filmed in 1974, and the budget for this film was $140,000, surprisingly just a little bit more than Night of the Living Dead. Uh, This movie went on to earn $26.5 million, and for you mathematicians at home who are keeping count, that is 189 times the budget. Good Again, investment. They're going to stay in business with this Good kind investment. of model. Not too shabby. The film follows a group of friends who fall victim to a family of cannibals while on their way to visit an old homestead. The film was actually marketed as being based on true events. The character of Leatherface and minor story details were inspired by the crimes of murderer Ed Gein. 
but the plot actually is mostly fictional. And I remember the time when I watched this movie, and I watched a lot of movies probably when I shouldn't have. I was probably 10, 11 years <laughs> yeah. old. <laughs> yeah, me, yeah. yeah, me too. When, yeah, when I watched a lot of these. <laughs> um, but at the time, I really did think this was a true story, Jason. Uh, of course, it's called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but if I'm not mistaken, it seems like at the beginning it says something like there based is. on true events. Yeah, or that's all it took like for that. me. I watched it and I thought, yep, happened yesterday. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And one thing that went further to convince me is um, I actually used to watch um, horror movies with my grandma. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you could believe that. Uh, so she was also a, a connoisseur of TV magazines. And one okay. that she had, uh, interestingly, was uh, about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And on the front, it showed the character of Leatherface. And then beside uh, Leatherface, it showed this just family photo. And, and this wasn't from the movie. It was something that was just somebody's photo from a photo album. And when I looked at that, and I, I read the headlines and saw that it was talking about the true events of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I was 100% sold. I thought, oh, this is the family <laughs> that this <laughs> right, movie yeah. is based on. Uh, so we watched this movie together and, you know, just kind of an interesting family story there. I, I'd seen a lot more movies before this. I'd seen Halloween. I'd seen some of the Child's Play movies and a lot of those that are actually much more graphic than this right. one. You know, this one, surprisingly, as with Night of the Living Dead, is fairly tame, uh, at least the original. Now, yeah. sequels got a little bit yeah. <laughs> carried away. Uh, but I remember sitting with my grandma and uh, watching this movie, and she built it up for me. She told me, all right, now, this is the most terrifying movie you will ever watch. And she said that she saw it in theaters when it came out in 1974. Uh, so this is sometime in the 90s, I guess. So we're watching this movie, and I'm expecting you know, any minute, this is going to be the most gory, horrific, <laughs> awful right. thing I've ever seen in my entire life because she kind of set she, that up she for me. She sort of prepared you for you that. Right? Yeah. That's where my little 10, 11-year-old yeah. heart was going. Um, but as I watched it, I, I saw how tame it was compared to a lot of these other movies. And when it was over, I just remember looking at her and saying, oh, that movie wasn't bad at all. And just the expression on her face. I mean, she was just like, uh, now tell the truth. That was... <laughs> <laughs> you was, don't have to lie to Mamaw. You don't have right? to lie to Mamaw. That, uh, that was a pretty scary movie, now, wasn't it? Uh, so that, that's always a fond memory I have of uh, this particular film. But the story came to director and co-writer Toby Hooper uh, while he was in a department store, actually, during Christmas. So if you're trying to think about where, how in the world does that happen? You know, you're standing in a crowded shopping mall. You're looking around. I would probably rather take a chainsaw, to be quite honest, <laughs> than to have to deal with like lines <laughs> on Black Friday. On Black Friday, yeah, just throw me, the, just give me, chain, give me a chainsaw, man. Well, he kind of had the same idea. So he was <laughs> standing in the crowd, could not get through the crowd, couldn't buy his discount VHS player or whatever, uh, and his eyes just started wandering around the store, and ev eventually it kind of fell on a display of chainsaws. So it, it doesn't take too much of an imagination to uh, get to where he got. Uh, suddenly he had an idea. <laughs> And it, he, he rushed home. He, he wrote the basic premise of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and the rest is pretty much history. But, yeah, it all originated in the shopping mall during Christmas. I, I thought the scariest scene of that movie uh, when I watched it was the – it's toward the end where she's like, like at the dinner table with the family. And, oh. and, and I think the grandfather's like quasi dead. I mean, it's like he, they, they have to move his hands for them. And it seems hard to watch. You yes. really don't know if he's alive or dead. And, and there's just people laughing and, and some people will talk and they're very articulate and you could, you know, you kind of want to communicate for yeah. her in some regard. Uh, and then finally, you know, it's, it's just terrifying that, that, that scene. And then she finally breaks through the window and in that particular scene, it's dark. But when she breaks through the window and she sort of falls out into the yard, it's it's uh, daylight. Yeah. And that, that's that's a big shift of like it's just you know dark and it's it's dreadful and there's no hope. And then all of a sudden you hear that break. It just shatters. Yeah, you, sh you know, and you hear that breakthrough and then you see daylight and you're like, okay, there's hope. That she, right. She's loose. She's yeah. outside, you know. And then even the final scene where, you know, she gets in the truck and the truck drives off and then he's just in the road like dancing. Spinning around spinning like around a psycho. With an, like an absolute maniac. And then – Credits. I mean, I thought, <laughs> golly, that is <laughs> that's yeah. intense. 
Yeah, and it's contrary to Night of the Living Dead because they have similar endings. You know, you bust out of the house and you yeah. think you're free. Night of the Living Dead, you know, there's no hope. The guy yeah. immediately is is killed. But the girl, she gets away, right? Yeah. But just to see Leatherface with this chainsaw in the middle of the road yeah. just spinning around and around. And I read somewhere that the actor who played Leatherface actually went and studied mental patients and got a sense for how they walked, how they moved, and how they interacted with others. And he adapted his acting to fit that model, which is very terrifying, Gosh, too. Yeah, that's I mean, the, you know, the, the movie's creepy, you know, and, and it makes you think. But the last the last probably five to seven minutes of it is, I think, what got me worse than anything. Just I think that, so. the the uh, the dinner table scene and then breaking out you know, when she gets in the yard and then the final scene there where he's just sort of dancing and spinning like right in the middle of the highway where yeah. cars travel. Right. And, I, and that's just that's something else. It's like, you know, that could have been anyone going up and down there. And yeah. like, it's like he doesn't care. You know, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with this chainsaw. And he had no regard for no, zero. anything that was going no. on. Not not even for himself. I mean, he's holding that chainsaw with one hand doing like a pirouette yeah. in the yeah. middle of the road. That was run. crazy. I mean, he could uh, cut his own arm yeah. off there. Um, but the film originated several elements common in slasher films, which include the use of power tools as murder weapons in a horror movie, as well as the characterization of the killer as a large, hulking, faceless figure. I mean, I can just uh, count the number of movies where that's a oh, thing, absolutely, yeah. right? Where you just have this huge yep. guy in a mask or, you know, without some presence of a face, and he's just a psycho, right? <laughs> and this is really where all that started. I think the actor who played Leatherface was about 6'4". So really? big old guy. Pretty good. Yeah, Pretty definitely guy. filled out the role. Now, the director, Toby Hooper, originally wanted a PG rating for the film. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, he sure did. And at the time, there were no ratings of PG-13. So it went from PG right. straight to R. And he checked with the MPAA to see, well, you know, how can I get this PG rating? And they told him, well, if you can just reduce the amount of blood on screen – then maybe we can swing it for you, you know, because he wanted to appeal to a wider audience and he thought sure. if he got in the PG market, then maybe he could just, you know, do that. Um, but, you know, the, the film actually received an R rating due mostly to the intensity and the content itself. Right. Um, but very famously, there really isn't a whole lot of blood in the film for that very reason, because they were shooting for a lower rating. And in my memory, I feel like there had to be some blood, right? This right. is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, <laughs> right, not yeah. the, the Texas paper cut, <laughs> yeah. you know. So, uh, but yeah, if you go back and you watch the film, you'll see there's there's not a ton of blood. A lot of it's, implied things. It's implied. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is just off camera or, you know, you just get the sense that something ominous is about to occur, but you don't actually see the graphic details. Now, that would change with the scene. Sequels right, and some yeah. of the movies that followed. But for this one, the actor who played Leatherface joked that uh, it's sometimes said that there's only about two ounces of blood in the film. So oh, right. <laughs> if you're trying to count it out. And the final thing I'll say about this movie is it was actually uh, a stance on vegetarianism. And I hmm. thought this was crazy because the whole concept of the movie is based on this Texas family of cannibals. It's grotesque. It's awful. But the director confirmed that the film is a film about meat. Uh, and he actually gave up meat while making the film saying, in a way, I thought the heart of the film was about meat. It's about the chain of life and killing sentient beings. And he actually gave up meat for a while and said, you know what? I'm a vegetarian now wow. <laughs> after watching this movie. <laughs> so uh, very interesting and also very strange. And you know another movie that's strange, Jason? The Exorcist. Yeah, I will see your Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> <laughs> and, ra and raise you an exorcist. The next movie uh, is one of the most recognizable names in horror movie history. Uh, in 1973, The Exorcist was released, and people's fear of the supernatural would never be the same. Based on the novel by William Blatty, The Exorcist is about a 12-year-old girl named Reagan who becomes possessed by a demon. And, of course, her mother has to bring the Catholic priest in in order to exorcise the demon. So, Shannon, there are two scenes in the movie that had a lasting effect on me. And, I mean, absolutely terrified me. Only two? I mean, well, two, <laughs> two specific that really got to me. Uh, the scene where she walks down the stairs like a crab. Oh, my goodness. Like, like bent backwards on her fingertips. Oh, goodness. Uh, 
that made me like literally just want to like just like run. I mean, as soon as I saw that, I've never I seen like, anything like that no, in my entire life. No, that was just like evil, like yeah. walking down the steps, and it was unexpected. Like you didn't know that was about no. to happen. I think there were two characters at the foot of the stairs having a conversation. <laughs> they might have been talking about her. And here comes Crab Girl walking down. Oh, it's terrifying. Down the stairs. Uh, and then, of course, the scene where uh, where her head does a three sixty, yeah. <laughs> and then she just looks right back at them. I mean, that messed me up. Those those two scenes, I thought you do not want any part of a possession. <laughs> no, that that really set the stage for a lot of those movies that were to come after. Oh yeah, uh, The Exorcist would go on to influence many other movies, like you're talking about there, uh, that would feature uh, possession and demonic forces, but none of them were as terrifying as the as the uh, the original, the The Exorcist. As far as as money, the Exorcist uh, had a twelve million dollar budget, wow. but grossed four hundred and forty million dollars, uh, making it one of the highest grossing uh, horror movies ever made. So four hundred and forty wow. million dollars, and this is in nineteen seventy three. That's crazy. Yeah, and one interesting point uh, you were talking about the rating system there a few moments ago. The MPAA you had mentioned, the Motion Picture Association of America, originally rated the movie. Oh, wow. Originally rated the movie X. So they had to change some things to get it down to an R? No. They oh. actually went ahead and uh, and put it out there, and it backfired on the MPAA. Uh, after thousands and thousands of parents began bringing their children to watch this scary movie, they kind of backed themselves in a corner, and they lowered the rating to an R. Really? Yeah. So it was actually rated X for like two weeks. And, uh, and of course, ticket sales just exploded, and they began to notice that they were actually bringing children. I think when word got out that, you know, it was probably doable for some children, they, they could they could endure that. You yeah. know, they could. It, it wasn't that, that, that bad. Sure. And so I, I guess the MPAA kind of rethought that and, and actually lowered the rating to an R. But it was originally an X-rated movie when it came out. That's really interesting. I've heard of a few movies that initially would be submitted to the MPAA and come back with an X rating, and they would the producers and directors would sort of see that as a death sentence. They'd say, you know, if we get that rating, we're never going to get play in theaters. We're not going to make any money. So they do everything they can. They bend over backwards, no pun intended, for The Exorcist (laughs) to uh, (laughs) to uh, show you get that rating back to an R. Um, so wow, so they just went ahead and released it, and it was okay. Yeah, and and like I said, I guess you know the association there, they just decided that you know, uh, really basically people were just ignoring the rating, and I guess maybe just kind of save some face with them. They put it back to R, maybe it was, it was sort oh. of an interesting dynamic there that happened. Yeah, that is that was really. That was really interesting. So, so The Exorcist came out in 1973. Uh, there was another interesting movie uh, with a Stephen King tie, it I think, was. coming up there. So, Shannon, what do you tell us about that? Yeah, in 1980, uh, a movie named The Shining came out, famously based on Stephen King's work. This is one we talked about a couple of episodes ago uh, in terms of the book. But uh, today, we're going to be talking about the movie just a little bit and some of the information and background of what occurred during the filming. So the budget for the movie was $19 million, and the movie went on to earn about $44.7 million. Not quite as much as some of the other movies on this list. Definitely not the, I think, what did you say, $400 million for The Exorcist? Yeah, 440 I believe. Yeah, 440. $440 million. So The Shining earned 447 which is you know just a little over 10% of that, or I guess right at 10% of that, uh, which was about two times the budget. Still a good business model. Sure. I can live with that. You know, yeah. I put in my $19 million, get 447 back. I'm good to go. That's right. <laughs> At the end of the day, I feel good about that day's work. Uh, but the film was directed by Stanley Kubrick and follows an aspiring writer and recovering alcoholic named Jack Torrance, who accepts a position as the off-screen—sorry, um, off-season caretaker of the isolated Overlook Hotel in the Colorado Rockies. Jack Nicholson was cast as Jack Torrance, but there's actually other actors who were considered. This surprised me because I feel like Jack uh, Torrance's actor, Jack Nicholson, was just so iconic in that role, and I had a hard time imagining some of the other actors who were considered. But those actors included such names as Robert De Niro, Robin Williams, and Harrison Hmm. Ford. But Stephen King disapproved of all of those actors, and he uh, Hmm. had some say in the casting choices, and they settled on Jack Nicholson. Did any of those names surprise you or stand out? I mean, obviously, they're all big names. Uh, 
it would have been interesting to to have seen their take on it. Yeah, I think that would have been cool. I can't imagine Robin Williams in that role. You know, I think Mrs. Doubtfire. I think Hook. I think uh, all these movies that he played in all had a comedic twist to it. Right. I actually think of those three that you mentioned there. I, I think Robert De Niro would be the one that I would probably give a, a shot to, as yeah. opposed to the others there. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I might be able to see De Niro. Yeah. In that in that role, um, but the film famously had a prolonged and difficult production period. It just went on and on. Stanley, uh, Stanley Kubrick, the director, had a very specific vision for the movie, and it took him a long time to execute that vision to get all the actors on the same page. And it didn't help very much that the script and the shooting schedule were changed repeatedly. Even sometimes multiple times a day, actors would receive revisions hmm. to scripts and the shooting schedule and who was going to be filming that day. And Jack Nicholson reportedly threw away new drafts of his script because he knew he'd get a new one to replace it. Uh, he often memorized his lines just minutes before filming. Wow. <laughs> I can kind of see this from him. You know, if he's anything like the characters that so he, he portrays, absolutely kind of yeah. plays by his own rules, yep. you know. Uh, so I, I thought that was kind of an interesting situation for Jack Nicholson. Now, the actress who plays Jack Torrance's wife, Shelley Duvall, actually became physically ill for months during the filming of The Shining. And part of that was due to the challenging production schedule. Um, she really did not get along with Stanley Kubrick. They would have yelling matches and, you know, she... I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, she, she really wasn't one to like to get new lines and have herself criticized all the time while trying to realize this grand vision from Stanley Kubrick. Some of her hair started falling out. I mean, she just really was down for a very long time. <laughs> and I think it shows a little bit in the movie. You know, she looks visibly distressed. And part of that she is does. her character. Yeah, she actually does. She just she seems nervous and, and just distraught a lot yeah. <laughs> in, in that movie, even before he flips out. You know? Yeah, yeah. And maybe not all of that is due to uh, Jack Torrance coming to kill her. <laughs> Perhaps some of that's just With Stanley to, Kubrick. Yeah, Stanley Kubrick uh, trying try to cut her down. Uh, but Stephen King actually criticized the film due to its deviations from the novel. And I think we talked about this on a previous yep. episode. The endings actually the endings are completely different, different yeah. right? Yep. So in the novel, they actually burn down the Overlook Hotel. And in the movie, something happens and they, they freeze to death. Is that what yeah. you remember? Yeah. In, in the movie, uh, Jack Torrance, uh, Jack Nicholson's character, basically is trying to find uh, Danny in, in this um, maze, like like a garden type of hedges, yeah. and he just frees to death. He just freezes to death out there. Uh, and then uh, the little boy and the mother, you know, the actress played by Shelley Duvall, they, they escape. But the hotel remains. It does not burn down. Right, so it actually survives. Yeah. Uh, Stephen King later on went on to remark that, well, that was okay. <laughs> but I, I suppose part of that was due to the success of the film. Everybody likes it. Uh, it's another one of those movies that was um, you know, adopted into the National Film Registry as a national treasure by the Library of Congress, uh, as was Night of the Living Dead. Um, but, you know, one thing that sticks out to me with that film is the whole door chopping down scene. There's a scene yeah, in the yeah. movie where Shelley Duvall's character runs into one of the rooms of the Overlook Hotel. Jack Torrance, the husband, is pursuing her. He has an axe. She runs into the room. She slams the door shut. She locks it behind her. And then all of a sudden, things get quiet for just about two seconds. And then slam. We just hear an axe hit the other side of the door. Slam. The axe hits the door again, and he just keeps chopping away at that. Um, the door that he chopped down was real. This was not a prop door. This wasn't, you know, a fake door. They tried a fake door at first. You know, originally they had a fake door there. Um, but Jack Nicholson is a former volunteer fire marshal and a firefighter <laughs> well, that, in the California Air National Guard. That came in handy. <clears throat> so, yeah, yeah. That, that experience allowed him to swiftly demolish this fake door. So they decided this is a guy who knows how to chop down his doors. So um, the film has been very influential. Part of it was due to the new types of camera angles that were developed, especially for this movie, including the Steadicam, I think they called it, which was a panning shot where the camera was stabilized. And it just really gave you a sense of this huge Overlook Hotel. Yeah, you can see that in several parts of the movie. I remember, yeah. Yeah, and, and it just really lets you see the setting as a character. We talked about this in the, the previous episode as well, but that Overlook Hotel really is one of the first things that you think about 
when you think about this movie of The Shining. So shifting gears just a little bit here, we're going to go back to one of the Alfred Hitchcock movies that really set the tone and the pace for a lot of horror movies to come. And that movie was called Psycho. So Jason, tell us a little bit about Psycho. In 1960, Alfred Hitchcock's masterpiece, uh, Psycho, was released and laid the foundation for slasher films for decades to come. Psycho was based on the novel by Robert Block and is considered one of not only the best horror movies ever made, but one of the best overall movies ever made regardless of category. The movie basically focuses on Marion Crane, played by Janet Leigh, who has stolen money from her boss and is on the run in a motel owner named Norman Bates. During the movie, viewers believe that Norman lives with his elderly mother in a gothic-style house on top of the hill that overlooks the motel. The viewers soon discover that Norman has multiple personalities, and in fact, his mother has been dead for a long time. And the person that folks have been hearing Norman have a conversation with during the movie is actually himself. Yeah. Uh, of course, the iconic scene from the movie is when Bates uh, stabs Marion Crane in the shower and it shows the blood swirling uh, down the drain. And I know in a previous episode, we had talked that uh, Hitchcock actually used, in, instead of uh, fake blood, he actually used chocolate syrup. Yeah, that really uh, surprised me. Yeah, to, to, because it looked darker uh, when it was shot, you know, in black and white. Yeah. And a few interesting points. Psycho had a uh, had an, an $807,000 budget, but grossed $50 million. So again, a, a very good return on the investment there. Yeah, that's incredible. So that's like 50 times, more than 50 More times. than 50 times, yeah. Uh, Janet Lee, who plays Marion Crane, is the real-life mother of Jamie Lee Curtis, of course, who played in John Carpenter's Halloween. Uh, and finally, even though color was available, Hitchcock chose to shoot it in black and white because he thought that that made the movie uh, more interesting and have a more serious and more dramatic appearance by shooting it in black and white. Yeah, I, I think he's right about that, too. That's just one of those movies that really stands out because of the black and white. There's just something you can do with the shadows in a movie that's monochromatic like that, that you really yeah. can't accomplish with the colored movies. And, and obviously, uh, Psycho and Hitchcock would go on to, to influence Halloween and, of course, John Carpenter. Of course, you know Hitchcock influenced tons of, of, oh, of yeah. horror movies, uh, but that one in particular. So, Shannon, tell us uh, about a movie that's a little bit more recent uh, in terms of our timeline here. Yeah, so in 1999, a movie by the name of Blair Witch Project released. And talking about movies with low budgets, Jason, I, I saw two different sources on this one, and I tried to find the one that was most accurate. But regardless, I think it's safe to say that this is one of the movies that was shot on one of the smallest of budgets. I found one source that cited $60,000 as the <laughs> amount of money that was used for this film. Uh, there were a few other sources that cited a little bit more, but all seem to agree that having the shaky camera and uh, the actors who were not really very well known, you know, uh, really contributed to this being one of the lower budget films. But it went on to earn $248 million. And if you want to do the math on that, that is 4,000 times oh my gosh. the budget. Well, a few of those dollars were actually mine because uh, I remember being in college in 1999. Oh, you were in that film too. I, I was, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, my, my uh, well, at the time, uh, it was my fiance, uh, uh, my wife now, Mindy and I, I was so excited about this. Yeah. And so she sort of humored me. Like, I would be, oh, Mindy, this is real. This, uh, all the talk and all the jazz around the Blair Witch Project, this really happened in Maryland. And they filmed it and they found some. Someone found this in a corner and blew the cobwebs off and dusted it, you know. And so, I, and uh, I, I talked her into going with me and, and watching uh, the movie. We had to drive to Lexington yep. uh, to watch it, and uh, she got motion sickness from it from the movie. All the, the shaky camera, of the stuff. camera yeah. shaky camera, yeah. So this one has a close uh, spot in my heart. <laughs> this, this was probably maybe the tenth or fifteenth movie we went and watched as a couple, maybe. I gotcha. Know. Yeah. You know, when you started that story, I, I thought you were saying that you were involved in the production of the movie. 
you said a few of those dollars are mine. And I thought, oh, you were in the movie too. I thought, oh, this is going to be a, a joke bit, you know. Uh, and then you went, you went on to tell a story, but I thought, oh, well, maybe he was in the movie. <laughs> no, just two tickets and some popcorn. That's what I got. Uh, so the film is a supernatural horror film written, directed, and edited by Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez. The film tells the fictional story of three student filmmakers who hike in the Black Hills near Burkittsville, Maryland, to film a documentary about a local legend named the Blair Witch. The three disappear, but their equipment and footage is found a year later, like you said, just kind of hiding out in a corner. They they dust it off, right? Hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> I, I, I'm guilty. I, I believed it. I think most of America I wanted it. to believe it. I don't know like, if most is the right word. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really want to look into it. As soon as I heard the story, I thought, yep, coolest thing I've ever heard. Get in the car. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Two tickets, please. Yeah. Uh, the recovered footage is the film that we actually see as the movie goes along. And, you know, <laughs> talking about low budgets again, the film was completed in eight days. So they had a budget of about $60,000. They went in the woods. They took about a week. They filmed 20 hours of footage and then cut it down to 82 minutes for this release. Part of me wonders if this was the most genius thing that has ever happened or whether it was just a total shot in the dark and these guys had no idea what they had on their hands with this movie and this particular approach. It just blew up. So the film was credited with reviving the found footage technique, which was later used in such films as Paranormal Activity, as well as a movie called Cloverfield. I've never seen Paranormal Activity, but I've seen Cloverfield. Yeah, I've seen both of them. Yeah, Yeah, and I I like the style. I think it's something that you wouldn't want to see every movie use necessarily. But when it's done right, it really lends itself to a, an interesting point of view. You really feel yeah. like you're there, yep. you know, in a way that other types of movie shots really can't do. So the, the film is thought to be the first widely released film to be marketed primarily by the Internet because there really wasn't a lot of promotional material out there about the movie at the time, but there was a lot of circulation on the Internet uh, back in 1999 about just what you're talking about, the quote-unquote real events that transpired to make the movie. The film's website even poured into this quite a bit. It featured fake police reports as well as newsreel-style interviews and you know just all these wacky characters coming out talking about the Blair Witch. I read somewhere that some of these people weren't even actors. <laughs> they just went into town and asked people to talk about this made-up fictional Blair Witch, and they did, and they sort of shot it as an interview through that online, and people ate it up. I know I did. It was oh, very me interesting. Too. So the filmmakers distributed flyers of missing students at the Sundance Film Festival, where this actually debuted. So they were going around prior to the movie premiering and handing out flyers <laughs> saying, if you know anything about the whereabouts of these people, please do let us know. You know, so that really just fueled the fire so much, you know, that made people want to go and see this film and see what in the world was going on. And, you know, IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, oh, yeah. where they have all the movies and the actors and the, you know, the credits for all the actors and that sort of thing. These actors, who and they were actors, <laughs> who played the teenagers uh, in the movie that were lost, on the IMD page, they were listed as missing and presumed dead for the first year of the film's release. So I don't know if that was marketing, but <clears throat> it seems to me that, again, this is just That's further committed. evidence <laughs> yeah, that, that you know people are buying into this. Now, I don't know to what degree IMDb looked at this and thought, Oh, that's real. These people are dead. I'm going to list this right. in the credits or, you know, how much money the the director sent to them to get them to do this, but for the first year, sure enough, uh, the actors were listed as missing and presumed dead. And this movie uh, had me fooled for a very long time. <clears throat> no, me too, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it wasn't until even like a, a couple years ago this conversation came up between me and my wife and uh, she swore to me up and down this movie was real. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I totally understand. And and I think, you know, it was released at just the right time. It I mean, was. That's, that's right as the Internet was exploding. Yeah. But there wasn't so much information out there. You know, there, there was just enough. You know, you couldn't fact check, every, like, you know, fact check everything like you can right. today. 
So I think it was just it was sort of the perfect storm. It was just a really cool idea, really cool marketing at just the right time, where just enough information could be you know shared uh, to generate an interest. Yeah, people weren't as cynical back then <clears throat> about the internet. They they weren't looking for the no. lies and the rumors. And no, it's, all all it's all true. It's all true. It's all true. It's on the internet, yeah. so it must be real. That's a joke today, but back yeah. then it no. was fairly true. Not twenty years ago. And that brings us to a nineteen seventy eight classic by the name of. Halloween. Jason, have you ever seen Halloween? I believe that we have spent a considerable amount of time the last few weeks talking about <laughs> Halloween. We have. Uh, it's one of my favorite horror movies uh, of all time. In 1978, John Carpenter's Halloween came out uh, and turned the horror movie industry upside down. In fact, uh, our last episode of Slapdash was entirely devoted to Halloween. If you haven't listened to that episode, uh, you need to because it's really it, it's a it's a really good one. Uh, we have an in-person interview with Tony Moran, the man who played Michael Myers in the original movie. And during the interview, Tony offers some really interesting uh, insights on on the development of the movie, and, you know, kind of uh, some uh, behind-the-scenes looks. It's it's really cool. In case you're not familiar with the movie, uh, a young Michael Myers murders his sister and is then locked away in an institution for 15 years. Myers escapes after 15 years and returns home to his quiet suburban neighborhood and then goes on a killing spree. Halloween is most known for Michael Myers' pale, haunting mask and the infamous theme music. But the most powerful thing about Halloween is the notion that the killer just comes to an all-American neighborhood. In movies like Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, innocent people make a wrong turn or in a sense trespass uh, to an area they shouldn't. But in Halloween, the innocent people just go home and find evil waiting there for them. Uh, In terms of uh, money, it's extremely profitable. Uh, it was shot on a budget of three hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. We've talked about that number a little bit in the last couple of weeks as we've, you know, uh, conducted the interviews and, and did the research. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of box office, sixty-five million dollars. That's crazy. So three hundred twenty-five thousand to make sixty-five million initially on, on box office. And you know, I remember one of the things that Tony said during the interview was that he thought it would be two weeks uh, at a drive-in. Yeah, it's, that's it's, all he was thinking. Yeah. I saw in another interview with Tony that he said he was paid $250 for his role in that movie, yeah. which is astounding when you think about how much that really affected horror movies, you know, that unmasking of Michael Myers and that iconic scene that he's in. So, yeah, $250 yeah. of that $325,000 budget. <clears throat> and actually, Halloween is one of the uh, most profitable horror movies ever made. Yeah. And, and, and on a short list. And they made a bunch of sequels. I mean, tons oh, and yeah. tons and tons. They just yeah. churned them out uh, for a long time. Yeah. So, Shannon, uh, the next uh, movie that you're going to be talking about is a pretty grotesque movie. And, and I think it's actually <laughs> the most recent movie uh, on our list. So it, it is. tell us a little bit about a bloody, bloody movie called Saul. Yeah. So in 2004, Saul was released on a budget of $1.2 million. It would go on to earn $103.8 million, which is 86 times its budget. Uh, The film is directed by James Wan in his directorial debut, and it's the first installment in the Saw franchise. And famously, in the film, two men awake chained in a dilapidated bathroom, and one is ordered to kill the other, or his family will die. So it's a sticky situation, as you can imagine. And the first time I watched this movie... Uh, number one, I was really grossed out <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> by, by the sure. entire setup to the premise of this movie. And if you remember the two guys who are chained up and they wake up, there's there's this dead body right in the middle of them, right? Yep. We'll learn more about that as the movie goes <laughs> on, you know, the big reveal there. Um, but it's just such a crazy setup for a movie. And, you know, the directors really wanted to do this on a shoestring budget. They um, were actually inspired by the Blair Witch Project. We talk about the the top 10 most influential horror movies. Well, this one was directly influenced by the budget of Blair Witch Project, knowing that it had such a very small budget and then churned out all kinds of money. Well, the same was true for Saw. Uh, Originally, they wanted to shoot the script uh, and let it be taking place in a single room with two actors, but that room wasn't originally a bathroom. It was an elevator. Hmm. So, yeah, and they wanted to use the security cameras in the elevator in order to show the perspectives of the two actors. 
So that was the original premise for the movie. But as it was picked up, it, they actually, you know, wanted something a little bit more feature length. Um, you know, the producers wanted something that had a little bit more of a back and forth story element. There were some setting changes and it became clear that they were going to need a budget a little bit larger than what they had. So the backers came in, they gave the 1.2 million, which I, I feel like is a, you know, a good sum of money. That's not too bad. You know, I, I can do some things. <laughs> sure. <laughs> with 1.2 million. Um, but you know, for a horror movie in 2004, that really still wasn't a whole lot of money. Now, Saw is the only film franchise to have its first seven films released in consecutive years from 2004 to 2010. And this is one of those oh, movies. I didn't realize that. Yeah, that, that for several years, every single Halloween, they would release a new Saw movie, right? And I, I don't know what they're up to now. They have at least seven films. I know recently they. I don't know. Did they do like a prequel or an origin story for Jigsaw? The I, main character I think there? so. Yeah. Yeah. So previously, the record for consecutive film releases in you know consecutive years was held by Police Academy with six <laughs> films <laughs> between 1984 and 1989. Uh, you know, Jason, of all the movies on this list. You know, I started out kind of as a fan of Saw. You know, I liked the first movie. Uh, I went and watched the second one in theaters with my wife, and I was like, eh, yeah, that's that's all right. Not great. Not really my cup of tea, what they're doing in that movie. But by the time the third one hit and we watched that, I thought, I'm done. Right, yeah. <laughs> this, this movie's just... <coughs> kind of had my feel kinda, of Saw. Right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of overstayed its welcome. So then they made four, five, six, Jigsaw, Jigsaw Origins, all, all these kind of things. Um, so I don't know. I, what what were your uh, takes on this movie when it came out? The first one I thought was very interesting. It got my attention uh, because during the first one and maybe even the second one, um, I kept asking myself, could I do that? Yeah. Or like, you know, whatever the situation was, you have to, you know, do this to yourself or you have to put yourself through this kind of misery sure. or whatever. I kept asking myself, you know, could I do that in order to survive? Uh, and, and I asked myself that question all through the first movie, all through the second movie. And, of course, you know, there is the surprise there at the end of the first movie. But really about two movies worth of that is about as much as I could take. I, I yeah. really lost interest. Uh, I did watch the third one, and I'm sure there's only maybe one more I did watch. There's several that I didn't. Uh, but I did watch one and two, uh, and I thought those were really interesting. I could see why they were so uh, popular. Uh, but I think they probably lost a little bit of steam. Uh, yeah. you know, they, they continued to make money, obviously, because they continued to make them. <laughs> right. uh, but but I think the first two probably offered some things that, that the uh, all the sequels didn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, To me, that was the first movie that I had watched. Uh, that had that degree of blood and gore that was self-inflicted, really. And that yeah. was sort of the whole movie. It was hard to watch. I mean, it wasn't just one scene. Yeah. It was like, that's pretty much the whole movie. So, you know, for for that reason, I thought it was interesting. But but after you've seen, you know, a couple, couple of movies like that, it's, you, you kind of get your feel, <laughs> or at least I did. Yeah, it was just something that was a little bit hard to sit through. I mean, um, I, I like the general premise, like you said. I, I like the, the first movie. And I also sort of imagine myself in that role and trying to figure out, you know, what would I do? It's it's similar if you've ever watched a movie of a character who's underwater and they're having to hold their breath to escape from a cage. You know, I'm sitting there holding my breath with them. Yeah, my wife does the same thing. It's it's like, you know, don't watch, uh, you know, Finding Nemo or anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that movie would be the end of me. Uh, but no, you know, it's, it's the same sort of idea. And, you know, after a couple films, I just mentally could not put myself in those situations anymore and i let myself off the hook and i said you know that's that's probably it for me and saw so uh and that leads us to one of the very first horror movies uh one of the the first films that had an influence on the genre and that is the cabinet of dr caligari okay now i'm going to be a champion for uh, the cabinet of dr caligari uh <laughs> this is the oldest movie uh on our list it was made in 1920 20, so obviously it was a black and white movie. Uh, obviously it was a silent uh, right. movie. The reason that this movie is on our list is because that it is often referred to as the first uh, true horror movie as it featured murder, 
uh, but it also featured these really interesting settings where they were like interesting dreamscapes. It wasn't just in like in a in a hospital room or on the street. You know, it had those settings, but it also had these uh, settings where basic geometry of rooms were shifted, and they used different kinds of shading. Hmm. Uh, and it, it was it was very interesting. And of course, there's also a, a really cool twist at the at the end of this movie. So again, it's it's way different. I mean, it's you know there's there's no language there. You know, you can't hear anything. Uh, obviously, black and white. Uh, but there are elements of that movie that you can see in the 1930s, like uh, particularly Dracula, like yeah. we talked about you know, a few minutes ago. I was ago. just thinking about Dracula. Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, and then there's even some of those uh, elements that you can see even going up into like the 60s and 70s, honestly. So uh, it is a very odd, odd movie. Again, this is one like Dracula that you can just go to YouTube and, and watch for free. And sure. when we were uh, doing research for this, <clears throat> I actually went outside. We have a TV on, on, uh, on our deck. And I went outside and started the uh, fire up, and I turned on and and uh, you know connected to the internet there and and watched the movie on YouTube outside. Okay. And uh, it was it was pretty cool to do that, but it's such a strange, bizarre movie. I yeah. mean, it's it's kind of difficult to to watch and follow. But yeah, th- this is the only one on the list that I've not seen, and uh, I was really curious to get your take on it. You know, talking about the different geometries of the rooms, that's certainly something that's played up in a lot of horror movies because I think that element sort of unsettling a little bit yeah, when it you is. show these generally familiar environments like a room, but you shift them just a little bit or make things a little bit more jagged or sharp rather than just showing the, the full right. scope of the room. Um, I remember this from a movie called The Mask of the Red Death, which was based yeah. on an Edgar yeah. Allan Poe film. Uh, oh, sorry, Edgar Allan Poe story. And in that one, they had a lot of these uh, room twists and turns and different colors and, and a lot of that. And it sounds like a lot of um, you know that sort of style may have gotten its start back in the 1920s, a right. uh, certain cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Dr. Caligari. So, so look it up on YouTube. Like, uh, again, it's free. Uh, pretty interesting. So, Shannon, one of the things uh, that we asked our listeners uh, to do for us is to actually participate uh, in a survey where we had listed – all of these uh, movies that we had talked about uh, here today, uh, and to basically uh, get their perspective on it, and for them to uh, to select the three most influential movies according to their opinion. Yeah. And so we have some data here that we would like to share. Uh, we ended up with 39 people that participated in the survey, and it was actually ended up being 112 votes from those uh, 39 people. I think maybe some just picked one or two, right? Uh, but they could pick as many as three. So 39 people participated, 112 votes, uh, and like any good election, we did have some write-ins yeah. and some, some honorable mentions. Uh, that was also an option. Uh, that we'll talk about. So I think at this time what we'll do, uh, especially for uh, for those 39 people uh, that helped us uh, with this activity, is that we will now basically release the rank order uh, of those movies, uh, starting at number 10 and then moving up to number one. All right. So uh, starting at number 10 is my dear friend, Dr. Caligari. <laughs> the cabinet of, of, of Dr. Caligari uh, ranks as, as number 10, receiving zero votes. <laughs> It was close. It was yeah. close. It, he put up a good fight. Yeah. Uh, he'll be there next election he season. He tried. So nobody voted uh, for Caligari. Not, a, not even his mother. <laughs> <laughs> Zero votes. He comes in at number 10. All right. So the number nine selection here for top 10 most influential horror movies is The Blair Witch Project, receiving four of the total votes. I can't say I'm surprised too much there, especially considering the competition, but Blair Witch Project at number nine. At number eight, uh, we have Dracula with five votes. Again, it's, it's easy to see, you know, uh, why it would uh, receive some votes. Just if, if nothing else, just, I mean, everything that we know about vampires comes from Dracula, right? So yeah. that alone puts it solidly in the top 10. It's significant. Yeah. The number seven film selected was Saw, also receiving five total votes. And again, I I said this isn't really my cup of tea. Uh, Of the ones on the list here, I would have probably taken Caligari over Saw. (laughs) That makes me feel better. Honestly, yeah. (laughs) It's the pity vote. Right. So number seven is Saw. All right. 
At number six, we have uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, and uh, it, it was ranked number six, and it actually received seven votes. And again, that's that's easy to see, uh, influenced a ton of movies. Moving into the top five, each of these films clearly were standouts, and they received significantly more votes than the others. Clocking in at number five is The Shining with 10 votes. I'm not surprised. I did think this would get into the top five. It's one of the ones I would have voted for. And uh, yeah, it's just an outstanding movie. Number five, The Shining. Uh, at number four, we have Night of the Living Dead. And, of course, the best line in that is, you know, they're coming to get you, Barbara. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Night of the Living Dead uh, comes in at number four, receiving 12 votes. I thought that one would be on top, honestly. Yeah. I, you know, it's just one of the big original horror movies. Right. So, you know, but top top four. That's, that, that, it's uh, a good showing. It got my vote. Yeah. yeah. Uh, coming in at number three is Texas Chainsaw Massacre with 14 votes. So I I would say top five. Yeah, I, I would say Texas Chainsaw Massacre top five in terms of influence because Halloween came just a few years later. And obviously there were some uh, common elements between those. So number three is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. All right. At number two is my dear friend Reagan. Uh, <laughs> And uh, The Exorcist, uh, it comes in solidly at number two with 25 votes and narrowly, narrowly came in at number two. It almost got to number one. Yeah, and the number one movie receiving only one additional vote beyond the number two ranked The Exorcist is... Halloween. Uh, (laughs) So we have talked about Halloween quite a bit on this show uh, in in different episodes. And, you know, it just seems like everything falls back to this movie. It's, you know, even though there were movies that came before it that had other elements of the slasher genre, it seemed like Halloween brought together the best of those elements. It added some artistic strides. And there's just so much influence from this movie upon all of the movies that came afterwards. So number one is Halloween. So once again, number 10, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Number nine, Blair Witch Project. Number eight, Dracula. Number seven, Saul. Number six, Psycho. Number five, The Shining. Number four, Night of the Living Dead. Number three, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Number two, The Exorcist. And number one, Halloween. And like I mentioned a few moments ago, we did have some honorable mentions. We did have some some write-ins actually receiving two votes uh, so technically coming in at number 10 really yeah. <laughs> as far as far as the uh, more than Caligari more, yeah. more more than my friend Caligari uh, Friday the 13th uh, that received two votes and then also receiving uh, one vote uh, each was Salem's Lot and Poltergeist. All right. Very good. So this brings us to the end of the content uh, and the end of the Halloween-themed episodes uh, for the month of October. Our next episode, we change gears as we will look at the interesting presidential facts and elections. So, Shannon, anything else to add? Thanks, everyone, for listening and subscribing to the podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SlapdashPod. Just thanks to everyone. We appreciate you. Yep. Thanks so much, everyone, and uh, have a wonderful week, and long live Dr. Caligari. (laughs) 